Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 330th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Ari Weisbart. Ari is the managing partner of Values Added Financial, an independent REA based in Washington, D.C. that oversees $143 million in assets under management for nearly 75 client households. What's unique about Ari, though, is how he and his partner, Zach, not only initiated fee minimums to ensure that they could profitably serve their clients, but subsequently have intentionally raised and then lowered their fees and minimums to slow down and then increase their growth pace during different stages of the business based on the firm's own advisor capacity and at least simply to create space for themselves to sustain their own healthy work-life balance. In this episode, we talk in depth about why Ari and his partner implemented a minimum fee for new clients as the business grew, then raised it as high as a $15,000 minimum during the pandemic, and then have since cut the minimum fee back down to only $6,000 as the firm has added more advisors and overhead. How Ari and his partner got comfortable positioning their firm is one that serves clients with progressive political values, which they ultimately felt would both ensure clients were aligned with their own personal values, could help them serve clients better, and alleviated the concern about whether their political advocacy outside the firm might otherwise alienate clients with differing political views inside the firm. And why Ari and his firm have leaned into values-based investing to further differentiate their unique clientele, not by utilizing ESG funds, but instead choosing ETFs that more proactively engage with their proxy voting and implementing Ethic Investing's platform to offer clients a personalized indexing approach while also capitalizing on the tax benefits of tax loft harvesting for direct indexing portfolios. We also talk about why Ari and his partner sought to bring more diversity to their hiring process, not by trying to seek diverse candidates per se, but by removing industry-specific certification requirements and offering more paid parental leave so that they could attract more diverse candidates who have the essential communication and client empathy skills that they can then train internally to get up to speed on the financial planning technical knowledge. How Ari recognized that he suffered from anxiety imposter syndrome early in his career and decided to seek help through both personal therapy and George Kinder's life planning training so that he could let go of some of the fear that he had in growing and scaling the business beyond himself and get comfortable with not always having control of every aspect of the business. And why as the firm raised and then lowered its fees, Ari was still not afraid of losing opportunities to find more clients because he felt that Clearly defining their values and how it aligns to the business will always give them an opportunity to find the right clients when the firm is ready to grow more, while also ensuring that they're growing a business based on the values that matters to them and not just from the pure economic standpoint. And be starting to listen to the end, where Ari shares why he feels that though he made more of an intellectual impact in his former profession as a lawyer, he feels more fulfilled now as a financial advisor, as he can feel more of the emotional impact in helping clients find more satisfied lives of their own. Why Ari believes that younger, newer advisors would benefit from demonstrating their listening skills rather than trying to have the answer every client question, as he's found that's what really provides more valued clients. And why Ari feels grateful that the advisory business model is so financially successful is it takes away some of the pressure to focus on the business economics and instead gives more opportunities to connect with the human aspects of financial planning and creating deep and meaningful relationships with the people around him in his life. 
And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Ari Weisbard. Welcome, Ari Weisbard, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's so great to get to do this with you. I'm, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation and, and talking about some of the ways that, I, I guess, as I think of that, that the strategy of how we price our services shows up beyond just sort of the, the straightforward, like, well, I try to figure out uh, what my clients are willing and able to pay based on the services that I provide and, and you know, try to find like the intersection of that supply and demand curve from from economics. You know, to me, there I mean, there are more things that go with how we price. You know, some of it gets into, well, what do we really need to price in order to staff, in order to scale if we're going to hire and build more infrastructure? Um, part of it, to me, pricing can also essentially be, uh, let's think of it like a flow regulator of, hey, if you're getting more business than you can actually handle right now, like you dial up the price, you'll get fewer people at a higher price point. Revenue grows, but you don't have as much volume, so you can manage to it. If you've got more staff capacity, you can bring minimums down and you know try to try to turn up the volume of people that are not screened out by a lower minimum or a lower price point, and and pick up the volume a little bit more. In practice, though, I like, I see advisors very rarely use pricing as a way to to manage sort of the the flow and capacity. But I know it's something that you've done very consciously in the firm over the past couple of years that have had, you know, not a small amount of volatility in life. It's just we've gone through pandemic and 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 everything that's come along with it. So I'm excited just to talk about like you know, ways that we manage business capacity and and how being strategic about our pricing can can overlap into trying to figure out like what is our capacity to serve and what should our price be based on our capacity to serve. Yeah, it's something that I think so many of us uh, try at least half a dozen approaches, uh, you know, in as many years. Um, and there's certain values that I think we're often trying to balance when we're thinking about our fees and our staffing models. Um, and some of those values are very consistent, but the exact way that we need to reconcile them in our lives changes, um, or we learn a little bit about um, parts of those that didn't that didn't work as well in practice as we imagined in theory. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think most of us have some sort of fee evolution story. Um, and then the pandemic is a whole extra curveball thrown into that mix. Yeah, I, indeed. I think to start, just help us understand the advisory firm as it exists today. And then I want to talk and understand a little bit more about like how how pricing and and new client growth and flow have have moved up and down over the past several years. Absolutely. So today we're a, a group of seven people. Um, the firm is Values Added Financial. There's seven of us. Two of us are managing partners, Zach and I. Uh, two are essentially lead advisors, um, Catherine and Bridget, and then two are associate advisors who are uh, newer to the firm, Joel and Georgette. So there's six advisors and then a wonderful uh, CSA, Tracy, uh, who uh, helps everybody. Um, and we've sort of divided that up into, into two teams. Uh, so there's kind of three of us on each, on each team that work most closely together on the actual clients, although there's a lot of cross-pollination. Uh, we work with about 75 households uh, currently, um, and that's partially that we are um, still sort of filling up the capacity after doing some hiring. Um, and... Uh, the average household pays around twenty thousand dollars a year in fees um, and has around two million. But as is usually the case with averages, that means there's a lot of folks who are paying less than that or below that, and and some outliers on the top end too. Okay, so you've you've got 
million to million and a half of total revenue across 75 clients that pay a pretty good household fee per client. Clients get assigned into, I guess, basically a three advisor team of a managing partner, a lead advisor, and a support advisor uh, for for servicing that gives, right, if I just do napkin math, 35 to 40 clients per team uh, uh, on average. And each of those teams might be, I guess, right now doing six, seven hundred thousand dollars of revenue on on average. So, like, very very healthy practice economics. Uh, and and how do you look at that from a capacity end? Like, is that near capacity? Is that like, oh no, we could we could add a whole bunch more clients with this with this structure? Like, wh- where does where does that sit? Just I don't know how much service model stuff you have to do with all these advisors to support twenty thousand dollar fees for clients. Yeah, we're we're uh, definitely not at capacity yet. Um, when it was just the four advisors, we were definitely uh, <laughs> coming up on the capacity wall. But we did some hiring, we did some investing in technology, um, and we um, uh, have managed to kind of expand our capacity to some extent. There's sort of the long-term capacity question, and then there's you know, if you tried to get all the way there in one year, when there's so right. much work in the first year, um, it, it, you'd be you'd be too crunched. So I think in the long term, we could probably be looking at uh, you know those those teams of three uh, working with probably double, um, but we'd have to get there over the course of two or three years to not uh, not have our quality suffer or our quality of lives suffer. Right. So you know, I I can get from what is thirty five for forty clients per team up to seventy five or eighty per team. So I might be at 150 for the for the practice on this structure, but but only if I'm adding whatever comes out to me a, a dozen clients a year. Like if I'm adding one a month, I can spend three years building up another 35 to 40 clients. But absolutely not if I'm going to try to take 35 in a year and get and get blitzed with all the first year work. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so so then help us understand how fee structure works like now in the firm today. So now is actually in a way the the simplest. We just charged uh, we charge two fees for our two sets of services. Uh, our investment management fee is very typical. It starts at one percent. It tears down uh, for folks with more than three million, and that's for investment management. Uh, it's very rare that we offer investment and management alone because we really believe in the comprehensive planning. And for the financial planning fee, uh, that's a separate fee. Um, and um, even though the services are offered together, we we think it's tremendously valuable, and we want people to know they're paying for that, and and that it's not just a free add-on. Um, so that fee uh, ranges for uh, maybe six thousand dollars for a single with a relatively straightforward uh, life, um, and maybe eight thousand for a relatively simpler couple. And if there's business owners or more complexity in the picture, maybe more like 12000 for the year. Uh, if there's a ton of trusts and held away assets and other things, it could go higher as well. Okay. So, and so like these are just two fees fully in parallel. So I'm, I'm, I'm a, whatever, a $2 million client that wants in for the, the, the holistic service I want it all, Ari. I'm, I'm paying 1% on my $2 million and I'm paying a six to $8,000 or higher financial planning fee for the planning side of it. Yes, exactly. Right. So, so I guess just curious, uh, you know, there there are so many firms out there that that do bundle the planning fees into the AUM fees, including some that bundle all of that together for what you all call like for just 1% in air quotes, not 1% plus separate planning fee. Do you do you worry about this from a, a just like a, a a competitive pricing perspective of are you know, are you in danger of losing clients that 
don't want to pay 1% plus eight grand as a couple when another advisor is charging them 1% without the eight grand add-on for financial planning? Uh, do I worry? Yes, I worry. <laughs> and yet it seems to not happen uh, very often. Um, and when it does, it's okay. Um, you know, there are folks who want to get a really good deal on their financial advising in the sense of the cheapest deal possible. And there are folks who want to get a really good deal in the sense of a really good value for their money. And in the long term, we are a better match for people um, who want to get the value rather than just uh, the cheapest advisor out there. So do you know how often this crops up in, in practice? Like, do you, I don't, do you measure or track, like, just how, how many people balk at, at separate fees versus not? Um, we definitely, I would say, you know, probably a third of people at least ask about it or clarify it um, if they're coming from a, another advisor, especially where they're used to paying um, 1%. Um, we, um, we've rolled it out relatively recently, so we don't have a ton of data on it yet. Um, but one of the things that um, the fact that they're asking questions is good. Um, but but uh, as long as we're able to really help them see the value of all the things we're doing that their current advisors uh, not doing or not doing as fully or deeply, um, uh, you know, we haven't we haven't seen. In, in fact, the last couple of quarters since we started this, we've been onboarding more people than we were historically. It went more like two a month. So so sort of the the inverse version, which is not. Oh, you charge for both of these. I don't know. I want to work with you. It's or wait, you charge for both of these. Explain to me what 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 you do that you're charging both these. To which you guys say, "Well, I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you about all the awesome financial planning work that we do. That's so substantive that yes, we have separate fees because you're you're gonna love it that much." And, and you know, off you go down the conversation door that they they opened for you. Right, exactly. And it also tends to be that for any given household, it tends to be that one fee is the more significant one. So if someone has a lot of wealth, then they're often used to paying 1% for investment management. And a lot of the folks that they may have been working with really only did investment management. They didn't help sort through complicated tax or estate situations, or they claimed to, but then didn't really follow through adequately. Uh, and so for them, it's really easy to say, you know, this this financial planning fee is a rounding error and look at all of the stuff you're getting and for folks on the other end of the of the spectrum where they have pretty complex lives they probably don't even meet an asset minimum for a typical firm with one or two million as their minimum um, but they have income they have complexity they're buying houses they're shopping for mortgages they're getting married they're figuring out couple finances all these different things in their lives they're happy to pay for some help figuring all that stuff out and maybe they only have one or two hundred thousand that they're going to have managed, but that's that's not a significant fee or rounding error. But we can actually work with them because we can be compensated for our time and have a good team, and um, and they can just pay a reasonable price for really good services. And so they're not really worried about what the AUM fee is, at least at this stage in their life. So now, talk to us about how this has changed. Because first of all, you said like just even the layering in of planning an AUM as separate fees is uh is something that you changed more recently. So what what did you change from? Like what was it before this? So when we first started, we we had a single fee that was for for all the services and it was calculated based on looking at their assets and their income and their complexity and we sort of had a fee calculator to try to figure it out. Over time, we 
in order to be more easily comparable to other folks, we it started looking more like just 1% of the assets that we managed or advised on. So the big difference there was if they had a 401k, we were helping, you know, we still help people screen share for their 401k or 529s that we can't directly manage for one reason or another. Um, and we're helping incorporate that into the plan. We're doing asset location. It's actually more work that we can't manage it directly. So we felt really comfortable including that um, as part of the assets we were looking at. And that was kind of a way also of making sure we had um, the ability to really invest in really holistic planning because we were being compensated on all of their wealth and we didn't have any incentives to steer, you know, steer rollovers to, to our direct management. Uh, so that worked fairly well initially. Um, and it just felt like a little bit too cumbersome to update it over time as people's held away assets changed and made, make sure that it was really fair among our clients and we were being consistent about how we measured it, uh, both as a compliance matter and as a fairness matter. Be- um, yeah. Because just if you're if you're charging a 1% fee across managed and held away, like you, you've got to get a data feed or otherwise have them share with you updated account values, and then you have to make a system across the whole business to actually cover that consistently for compliance purposes and that was that was getting messy for you exactly you know the links break even if they've entered them in the aggregator and you have to pester them and if they have a rental investment property you know do you just look at redfin and what about the mortgage on it you know it, it gets very complicated and so the information gets stale um, and it makes it a little bit harder to compare your fee to other people's fee um, and to explain these concepts, you know, pretty early in the relationship. So we were sort of innovating on fees when we didn't necessarily think that was the most valuable thing for us to be innovating on. Um, and it um, it just started feeling a little more cumbersome uh, to have this kind of idiosyncratic way of explaining our fees to people. Interesting. I Like, I'm struck by how you frame that. Like, we were... We were innovating on fees and realized that we didn't that we didn't need to be. So I, I take it. I mean, that sounds to me like an evolution of part of what we were doing when we started out was we could actually say, "Hey, we've got this new alternative, different fee schedule. It's not based on assets. We're different." But then you got enough clients who had assets and started comparing you to other advisors. And then instead of being able to differentiate with the new fee structure, you were just ending out with a lot of conversations explaining and rationalizing and mapping your fee structure back to the thing they were actually more familiar with in the first place. Yeah, to some extent, that's how it played out. I mean, I think really our differentiator that the fee part connected to was that we were fiduciaries who were very scrupulous about avoiding conflicts of interest. And so what we liked as finance nerds was that we didn't have an incentive to get them to roll something over or to mm-hmm. keep a mortgage longer so that we could invest the assets. Because, you know, if we're really looking at net worth, um, then, you know, we're charging it on either way. So if someone says, should I sell my rental property and invest the money in the stock market instead? We think that's a good idea for real because it's a pain in the butt to be a landlord. And the stock market is a lot less work and the return is probably similar, but we don't want to have anyone ever wonder, well, is the reason you're telling me that so your AUM number will be higher and your fee will be higher. So you were in some blend of like the relatively liquid assets. So standard investment accounts, 529s, 401k plans, investment real estate and the like, maybe an additional layer of complexity fee for someone that's got unique circumstances like a business, but nominally it was just kind of 1% of anything under the umbrella that's on your balance sheet that we might be giving you advice about. Exactly. Right. Okay. So 
And, but so it sounds like the, the, the big challenge to that just practically was actually keeping the data up to date on the value of all the held away things got messy because account aggregation is decent, but not perfect, at least when you're trying to scale billing, like across a large growing number of clients where there's actually a lot of assets at stake. So like you, you, you can't exclude one of these or get them materially wrong because you're working with some pretty affluent folks. Like it, it's a lot of money if you're wrong. Right. And, and we, we also, you know, we also, one of the advantages of the initial model or what felt, what felt really ethical to us is after we did our initial analysis, we would say, and this is what it is a quarter, it's, you know, 2000 bucks or whatever it was. And they would just be printed in black and white there. It wouldn't be any of the sort of, um, uh, you know, ways that people sometimes pay a percentage and don't even realize what the actual dollar cost is on their right. statements. And we liked, we liked that transparency. It felt, um, you know, I, I occasionally use Yiddish here. It felt menschy. It felt like, um, you know, the, the good ethical thing to do. And, um, but what that also meant was if we wanted to update it over time as our clients' wealth increased or to as our costs with inflation increased, we'd both have to get accurate information and we'd have to, you know, do a new amendment to the contract to update the fees. Um, and, you know, the reason that this whole business does AUM for the most part is it's a lot easier if it's um, if it's just part of the contract and a little bit more organic. And so did you go directly from 1% of everything we manage or advise upon, like kind of this 1% of AUA model, did that go directly to the current model of we're just going to do 1% on AUM and a separate planning fee that kind of scoops up the outside stuff? Or were there more more intervening steps on this? Yeah, like there, was one, there was one main, main intervening um, stage, which was um, essentially um, an AUM fee with a minimum. Um, our, our compliance people helped us to characterize that as, you know, whatever is not the one percent AUM fee is is a planning fee. But essentially, if some if our minimum is it changed over time, and we'll talk about that. But if our minimum is eight thousand, someone only has five hundred thousand under management, then the contract will say that other three thousand is a planning fee, uh, and the one percent is the one percent. Um, so what so that you, did is so allowed. You- you kind of get like I I hear some some people refer to those as like AUM offset models. Like we have we have an eight thousand dollar planning fee that's offset by one percent of AUM. So by the time you get to eight hundred thousand dollars, you have no planning fee because you're doing eight eight K on an eight hundred thousand dollar account. If you've got an eight K fee and you're only offsetting five thousand of it with a half million dollar account, three thousand dollar planning fee remains so like that exactly that that model that essence right and it's a it's a model that's very easy to explain to business owner financial advisors but it's somewhat difficult to explain to the kind of people who want to hire financial advisors um we definitely did get just you know people who clearly were confused the first time we explained it and we would need to re-explain it but the virtue of that is is it it does away with asset minimums, which we were really throughout all of it. That's been consistent. We don't want to say if you have the complexity and needs in your life where we could help you, and you're willing to pay the amount of money that allows us to pay our team fairly and have good lives ourselves and help you. We're going to say no because you don't have the assets for it. We just never wanted to have that conversation. It has. Um, you know, as has been discussed on the podcast before, it has potential racial discrimination effects, um, and uh, it, it just limited who we could work with even um, even more than than the question of can we add enough value to our to your life to justify our fee. So, so you were you were pushing just to try to create this break of 
yes, there's a certain amount of fee that we have to charge just to deliver the value that we deliver, but I don't want your eligibility for our services to be defined by whether you happen to have liquid wealth in an invest in an investment account. Just if you have a willingness to pay for our services, I want to make sure that you can buy our services. Exactly. Right. And we so, still have very high standards for who's a fit. You know, we want to still make sure that we feel the client is going to get a lot more value than their fee. We don't want that to be a close question. Uh, and we want to make sure the fee allows us to compensate our team fairly and and give us enough time for professional development and lives to, to do this job well. Um, uh, but um, but we don't want it to just be limited by the assets. So So you went from 1% everything, 1% on just managed, but with a minimum fee. And now this sort of split approach, 1% AUM fee and a and a separate planning fee that layers on. That's right. So what was the what was the driving force for you to go from 1% fee with a minimum to you know 1% fee with a planning minimum to 1% fee and a planning fee? We weren't actually trying to do that as a way of raising fees. We were trying to do it as a way of clarifying ahead of time what would the fee would be, making it a little bit easier to communicate around it. Yeah, really those two things. So, you know, at the, the immediate, our minimum had gotten as high as $15,000. Uh, and so what that meant is if someone had a couple hundred thousand in AUM, they were paying a fairly large planning fee. Um, and there were some people where that made a lot of sense, especially for business owners um, or people with a whole lot of, um, you know, a whole lot of complexity. Yeah. And we liked working with them. They're great clients. But we realized there were a lot of people where, you know, maybe there's six or eight or ten thousand dollars worth of, of really valuable work we could do for them, and where it made sense at this stage in their lives to have everything, you know, in a savings account for a down payment or in their four hundred one k at work and not really have anything managed. Um, and as we expanded our capacity, we we wanted to figure out how can we serve those people in a way people much more like ourselves at that stage of life in our twenties and thirties. Um, and not be priced out by saying, you know, you would like $8,000 of work, we'd like to provide it to you. But since you're not a $15,000 complexity client, we won't serve you. Again, trying to make it more accessible while really making sure that we're compensated well enough that we can um, live the lives we want to and make sure our team can be compensated well and, and not have to work with 100 families each. So the idea was this it sounds like in practice, this tied to we've had a $15,000 minimum, we want to bring the minimum down to uh, a six to $8,000 range. But rather than just bringing it down with the offset model, right, just, you know, instead of having AUM fees offset your 15k planning fee, we can have AUM fees offset your 6k planning fee, you would you just wanted to set it with two separate channels or just look, the 6k minimum planning fee is just a 6k minimum planning fee, period. And if we're managing portfolios for you, that's a separate service and we're going to charge separately for it. Right. It's just simpler to explain. And we also felt like we could bring that planning fee down a little bit further if we will eventually be getting some AUM from it. Um, and that made it possible to to widen our net even a little more than we would have um, if we if we just brought the minimum down but still had this offset model. And so is that effectively your 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 minimum now is if you're willing to pay the planning fee that starts at six to eight K for Sing, simple singles or simple couples, like they can they can engage you with that even if there's no assets, and so there's going to be no AUM. The and you you simply live at a six to eight thousand dollar minimum fee per client for planning, and that's and that's the minimum. 
Yeah, that's our that's our only economic criteria. Now, we still want to make sure that we feel like we're a really good match personality-wise, that we're going to offer enough value to them, that the types of needs and questions they have are the type that we're really great at answering. Uh, so we still do uh, carefully make sure, you know, do mutual discovery before we take folks on, but we don't, we don't require any kind of as, uh, AUM uh, assets as part of it. So now help me understand this dynamic of changing minimums, particularly the I guess the more recent change to bring it down, because when I when I look broadly at advisory firms, you it, not uncommon to have minimums. Uh, most advisory firms, as they start adding team and start to scale up, uh, minimums begin to show up because just like now you've got set staff and payroll to make. So if you're absorbing all your staff overhead time with clients that can't pay a certain level of fee, like it just it actually starts being an outright money loser for the business. So you know minimums get common. As firms grow and they add more staff and infrastructure, minimums tend to drift higher over over time. Um, you know, part of that is the overhead may get a little bit more expensive, and usually part of that is just we 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 build our networks and ability to attract clients that are further up market. We're kind of literally mathematically getting paid more more dollars for our time with more up market clients. So minimums usually, you know, once they appear and start rising, I find they almost never go the other direction for firms. So I'm really curious to understand this journey of like how the how the fee minimum got as high as $15,000 and how the fee minimum came back down again to barely half that. Well, the first part of the journey is uh, pretty intertwined with the pandemic and with the okay. lives that my partner and I wanted to wanted to live. So we had switched this model, I think, relatively, you know, relatively shortly before the pandemic started. And both of us are in relationships with um, women that we want to have be egalitarian and feminist and where we want to be full equal partners in parenting and household responsibilities and where our partners have, you know, careers of their own that are important and that we want to support and, um, and where we have young kids. And so when the schools closed... Um, you, uh, <laughs> you've got pandemic hits and you've got daddy daycare duties while we you're have, yeah, your advisory firm. Absolutely. And, um, I just had my second child. She was just a few months old at that point. Um, honestly, thank God she was a relatively easy baby, but my older child was going pretty stir crazy and just needed a lot of uh, involvement from both parents. We actually, um, Zach and I live around the corner from each other, so we even combined forces and tried to do some co-oping of the parenting. But even so, our time was just tremendously valuable, and we cared a lot more about um, limiting our work time during those months. And we didn't know for how long it would be um, than we did um, uh, than we did uh, exactly how fast our business grew. And so, at some level, we were really tempted to just close the doors entirely. We said, you know, we. Uh, this was also a time when, of course, our clients had all sorts of concerns, um, right. you know, both with the crazy market during those first few months and, um, uh, you know, if they needed to make a big change in their lives around their own parenting responsibilities or work. So we really did not want our services to our current clients to suffer. We did not want our family lives to suffer. And we we really were ready to close the doors. And yet we said, so like, close, okay, close the doors, not meaning like shut down the firm, just oh, meaning yeah. no, no one, no one, no one. No one knew. Yeah, like, no one knew. Let's, let's figure out how to do well with what we, we have, you know, the people we've made commitments to our family and our clients and not, and not let the new clients displace that. And, you know, but if someone comes along with, with, you know, $10 million, are we really going to turn them away? So we, we, 
we we decided we we sort of have a informal way of thinking like how good of a match is this in terms of personalities and values and how good of a match is in economically and we basically said if there are 10 out of 10 on both the economics and the um you know we don't literally score this but the the metaphoric 10 out of 10 on both then we'll we'll still accept someone new because we just don't want to miss a chance for a wonderful lifelong relationship um uh, because of the unique timing um but we wanted to be extremely selective um, and it ended up that several folks came along during the, you know, what ended up being those the three years since then, um, but especially the first year of that, who were just wonderful matches for our firm and, you know, had significant wealth and were struggling with just the kind of issues about, you know, their own needs and the impact on the world that they wanted to have that we love helping people with and we just couldn't say no. Um, but the result is that the average person who came in then was paying a higher than, than average fee and, um and we, we, you know, even with the higher minimums, we're kind of onboarding more than we meant to. So, so I guess I'm trying to understand how related those were. Like you were trying to be more selective about who to take and you ended out with bigger clients or you were literally just trying to ratchet up the minimums as a, a, a nice way to say, go away. Like I, you know, oh, I'd so love to work with you, but hey, our minimum is $15,000 fee and, you know, you only have a million dollar account we might not be such a great fit for you and like it's a it's a nice way to say no because you just say your minimum is so high we're not a good fit and then they can reject you so you don't have to reject them like uh i guess i'm just trying to understand like how much of it was we ratcheted up the minimums because we were like trying to filter people out or we were we were simply trying to be more selective in general and what we ended out with were saying yes to people who had much bigger dollar amounts and were good fits and lo and behold that basically means we had higher minimums. Yeah, I think I think we were we were deliberately trying to limit how many people we onboarded and we were also, you know, I think we always were more transparent than a lot of firms and being honest about what we charge and relatively early. I think there's a different, you know, approach of kind of luring people in, getting them to like you, being a little cagey about what your fees are and only telling them after you've had a lot of chance to um, you know, get them invested in you, telling you what you charge. So we, we were never quite that approach, but we got very transparent about our fees, front and center on the website, um, you know, sharing more information in advance and having that minimum number go up. As I'm remembering it now, we even started doing a little bit of this when I was going on parental leave because we knew we'd have some capacity constraints. So we, in the calmness before the pandemic, uh, we're starting to, I think we maybe raised our minimum from eight to 10 or something like that. And then um, uh, we raised it even further when the pandemic happened, I think, to 12 and then eventually later to 15. And, you know, if someone who was a great fit came along and, and maybe had a relationship, so we were chatting to them with them, but it, they, they didn't fit that. I, you know, we may have granted exceptions or we may have said, you know, this is temporary. When Ari's back from leave, we're hoping to lower it again. But then, of course, the pandemic happened. And so our, our capacity constraints continued or it got worse. Yeah, I mean, I'm struck by the... I mean, what it sounds like the ultimate irony of this, which was you, you raised your, like you raised your minimums to try to dissuade some people from coming on because just you were limited on capacity and how many you can take on because you've got uh, childcare uh, 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 constraints at home. So you ratchet up the minimums, you post it right out there on the website, these much higher minimums, and then people just kept coming and wanting to buy anyways. 
Right. And, you know, the way you say it, maybe there was some element of it's a special exclusive club, but we don't really know the counterfactual. I mean, if we hadn't raised the minimums, would three times as many of people called us? I'm not sure. Um, so some of this was trying to, you know, one of Zach takes the lion's share, thank God bless him. Zach takes the lion's share of the initial calls, or at least he was back then. Um, and some of it was just trying to um, preserve some of that time again so he could focus on his family and on, on current clients. Um, so I think there was some fil- some filtering. Um, it's at least my strong empirical hunch, I'll say. So do you, I, don't know, I mean, just from this, I'm like, do you, do you worry about, you know, turning away pretty good clients that may have been lost as you're going through that in environment? Or like how many, I don't know, how many million dollar clients didn't, didn't say yes in that environment when ironically, like today you would be quite happy to take that client because now the minimums have come down. Like, was it, I don't know, just what was it anxiety producing for you to potentially turn away clients that now you probably would have been fine to have taken or just, um, you, gotta, you gotta do you what know, you gotta do at the time. Probably a little loss aversion, but I'm someone who's always just valued my time a lot more than surplus money. As long as I'm have enough steady income that I'm paying my bills and I live a relatively frugal life and was even more frugal back then, uh, you know, I feel fine about it. And it, you know, I would never have had another chance to be the kind of partner or parent that I wanted to be during that crazy time. And there's always a chance to you know find another good client and that's you know that's not something i'm going to miss out on in life uh, that particular client who didn't didn't knock on our door hopefully they found another really good advisor who had the capacity to really serve them well and i know i was able to serve the people i did serve well because i was really disciplined about not saying yes to too many people well i'm, I'm struck by just how you frame that like there's always another chance to find another good client because I, I feel like i I don't hear that from a lot of advisors, right? Just, I, I don't know, right or wrong, for better or worse, I feel like a lot of us just get anxious. Like, I've got a good client here in front of me. Like, I don't necessarily know if I'm going to get another one or when I'm going to get another one or how long it's going to take to get one that's like pretty darn good the way this one is. Like, just, you, you know, you never know if uh, if something will change. Uh, so just, I'm, I, I know, I'm, I'm struck by, I don't know, the, the confidence or the comfort that you had of like, yeah, there'll be more good clients in the future. Like it's cool. Yeah. I I feel like I've had a charmed life and there's certainly lots of things I'm anxious about. Um, but that particular one is not one of, (laughs) one of the things that I worried as much about. And, you know, some of that you can, we had a very good first couple of years of the RIA. And so that gave us a real foundation and confidence you know, we weren't paying for an office rent somewhere for an office we weren't using. We kept our expenses low. We had a, a you know, essentially a CSA share because Tracy was running her own business at that point, working for multiple firms. So we only were paying for the hours we used. Um, so it was very easy for us to, you know, go into survival mode, focus on the time we needed, and and delay, you know, growth. And that's what we needed then. And then once um, once we were able to hire and um, and get our kids back in school or some sort of camp childcare, uh, then we were able to resume the growth. And maybe those exact same clients weren't still waiting for us. But, you know, when we've been able to accept clients, we've really never had a, an issue having at least a few good matches uh, come in every quarter. So then help us understand where where all the growth is is coming from in practice. I mean, I think you've said like, you know, your 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 million well, I guess so what like what where does revenue sit at this point? For you? Uh, it's around 1.3 million or so. Okay. 
So, well, I know we, uh, you know, we had your business partner on the podcast like many, many years ago. I think back in 2018, probably five years ago. I think not long after the firm had launched. And and I think it was at about three hundred thousand dollars of revenue then. So like notwithstanding the minimums adjustments and the changing fee schedules, moving up and up and down, just you know going from three hundred thousand dollars of revenue to one point three million of revenue in in a little over four years is is a lot of growth unto itself. Especially when you put on top of that like and. Uh, uh, and we were trying to slow it down for a while, right? So, so where's all the where's all the growth coming from? So, you know, there has been some fits and starts, some of them deliberate, and some of ju- them just the the ebb and flow that that happens. Uh, you know, for some reason, end of year and beginning of year is often a very popular time, and uh, other times they're a little slower. But you know, roughly speaking, if you look, if you sort of exclude the noise and look at the big pattern, um, uh, it's um, you know, roughly one client a month. Um, uh, some some months are more, some are zero, but that's the average. Uh, paying around twenty thousand dollars. Again, probably what that really means is three out of four are paying, you know, half that, and then one really large one or something like that. But the the, the averages basically work out to that. So if you if you do the math, that's a dozen clients a year, and you know, two hundred or two hundred fifty thousand dollars of additional revenue a year, and you know, a huge chunk of that gets plowed back into hiring and technology and donating to causes. Um, uh, but, um, you know, but that's, um, that's, that's how it's gone. So I think it is interesting to frame that, you know, just you're, you're not, you're not growing this in a high volume business, or just as you know, like one client per month, but $20,000 per client, like growth, growth, growth adds up pretty quickly as, as you just, uh, as you just noted with the numbers. So. But even at that level, like one multi-million dollar client a month is a, a really good, healthy uh, growth pace and revenue growth. So where do like where do clients come from for you? Like, just where are you lobbing up? You know, a, a new multi-million dollar client every month. So, um, you know, I want to give a huge amount of credit to Zach on this, um, and you know. Sometimes people compare the outside of other firms to to their own insides with all their internal struggles. And a huge leg up that we had that is not obvious from our 2017 start date is that Zach had been doing hourly coaching for almost 10 years um, in a sort of financial education way uh, before he opened the RIA. And so very few of those people actually became our clients. It's not like we we did the kind of leaving a broker dealer and, and having a big start that way. But there were a lot of people who were his Facebook followers and posted nice things when he launched and mentioned it to their parents or their friends. And so we had, you know, the sort of snowballing of referrals uh, had a big head start that might not be obvious from the 2017 date. Um, so if so if you don't have $300,000 revenue a year and a half in, like you, if, if, you should not be comparing it with the right. timeline. So- so, so part of your your launch catalyst was, hey, I've actually been building, you know, a, a network, a following, a, a you know, an, an email list, or I guess a, a Facebook uh, a follower list. So I've got some, I've got some warm folks who already appreciate some of what I do before I even get started here. Right, right. Um, and I, you know, I had, I have a network as well. And I'd been doing a little bit of a state law, although not for nearly the 10 years that Zach had been doing his coaching. So some, you know, some of our, our clients came from them. But a, really, a ton of them just came from our, our social networks or from the networks of his hourly clients. We've never done any paid marketing. 
Um, I mean, we've maybe sponsored a uh, sponsored an ad in a in a organization's brochure, but that's about it. Um, but we've um, uh, and then Zach also, you know, he he's really passionate about having an impact and sharing a lot of these these the values based approach that we have, and so he's done some media work, um, and that that has led to some. Some clients, people apparently sometimes Google anti-capitalist or socialist advisor, and uh, there's some headlines of articles interviewing him with that headline. So um, I'm not sure how many of them have turned into clients, but we we um, we we do get some good Google search off of the media work Be- because that's literally part of your uh, your t- your targeting of who you of who you serve. Like I know I, your I mean your homepage just outright says we help progressives build financial lives they feel good about like you are you are politically targeted or like politically oriented in in who you serve that's part of the business like offering and positioning out of the gate right absolutely and there's a, you know what Zach likes to say is there's a lot uh, more socialists looking for a financial advisor than there are socialists who are financial advisors so it's got a natural niche effect. <laughs> to yeah, it. and and there are increasingly, you know, certainly there's a lot of advisors who focus in ESG, um, um, and there's gradually more and more who are looking at a broader progressive values approach um, to 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 their niche. Um, at the recent XYPN uh, live, there was a panel, and there were several advisors who came and were interested in this, and others who wanted to dip their toe in the water and and think about it. You know, being more uh, open about you know, one's own politics and ways that that touches on the work that we do with people. Well, yeah, because I'm, I just, I'm fascinated by this because, right, classically, in, I feel like in advisor world in particular, you know, they're like, there, there's, you know, there's certain topics you're not supposed to talk about, dot, 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 right? Like you don't talk, you don't bring up religion, you don't bring up politics, uh, because those are potentially divisive issues. And, you know, just you don't want to you don't want to blow up a client relationship accidentally stepping on a landmine around making some any kind of statement that about something religion or something politics and finding out your client is on the other side of that that belief. So I'm I'm just to me like it's it's fascinating to me that you know your approach is like now nah, we actually just put that on our homepage. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, it's been good. It's been good to niche that way. But also, like before, we knew it would be a good business idea. It's just who we are. Like we didn't want to go through our lives walking on eggshells, worrying about whether if we showed up at a rally or got interviewed in the paper about something, some client would be mad. Like we just wanted to be ourselves in the world. Our whole first careers were, you know, in both Zach and my case, and several of our team members were in public service or advocacy. Um, and so, you know, I don't think we really had the option to hide the ball on that. Um, but what we found is that in our conversations with people about, you know, how much of their money to give away, we talk about religion, we talk about politics, we talk about, you know, conf- conflicting morality that they have about wanting to do well for their kids, for their family, to avoid putting them at risk, but feeling that they have unearned privilege. You know, they're deep uh, moral and political conversations. And um, knowing that we are trying to balance, however imperfectly, the same kinds of goals is central to having those conversations. And I guess just practically speaking, like when you stated out there on your website, like you're you're never going to blow up a client relationship talking about progressive politics because if that's a concern for them they ain't like they they got turned off on the website long before they ever possibly became clients like just i mean it strikes me there's sort of a self-selection bias like 
it's one thing to have an existing client base and try and decide whether or where you're going to talk about issues like politics and religion. But when it's part of the offering and the marketing and the messaging in the first place, self-selection biases kick in pretty powerfully. Like The people who don't like that just won't become clients and the people who either do like that or just don't don't care that that's part of the conversation will go ahead and become clients. And so at that point, it, it's a fine thing to be part of client conversations because clients who care have already sorted themselves out. Either they like it and they're here or they don't like it and they're not. But that means none of the conversations with clients should be negative at that point. Right. No, the, the risk at that point is very low, as long as you're willing to say, I'm not going to try to be all things to all people and make sure absolutely anyone who stumbles across my website is going to follow up, but rather I'm going to be the, the right match for the right people. And if we only need 30 or 50 of them per, per team, then that's then we're going to be able to find them sooner or later. Uh, the closest we came to a problem with this is that um, Zach uh, was an advisory neighborhood commissioner, which is a kind of funny DC um, sort of elect, you know, it's an elected office. It's an unpaid volunteer office. And he sponsored a resolution about the Trump hotel here in DC. And um, some, some Trump fans saw that and they went on Facebook and they gave us one, you know, people we'd never done business with or talked to, but they went on Facebook and gave us one star reviews. Um, so that wasn't pissing off any of our current clients, but it, you know, it was, it was one of the few times when our political activism had any blowback. Uh, but one of our clients noticed this and said, hey, there's all these one-star reviews from these uh, right-wingers who are trying to hurt Zach for his activism. Those of us who've actually worked with Values Added, like, you know, we should weigh in to try to counteract it. So it ended up that it created more positive um, positive activity for us and probably got us some clients um, uh, so like the clients rally, like your clients rallied to support you because of the negative campaign. That right, exactly. You know, the fact that people had been targeted for our politics actually helped us uh, get, you know, get more positive word of mouth. And just out of curiosity, because I, I truly don't know the, the mechanics around these dynamics in particular, like, were you able to clean up the Facebook reviews? Like, are you able to get some of that taken down? No, we, like, uh, I think we need to live with that being out there. I think, uh, I, you know, luckily they didn't organize as well as our clients did. So I think it was only a couple <laughs> actual zero star reviews. And I think Facebook okay. moved away from stars after that. But it is an issue because, you know, if we have, you know, as you know, there's, uh, weird rules around once you start having any influence over a third party raider, whether whether that's now um, right something that you're right now now you get an RA, RA marketing rule if you're going to get involved in editing the reviews that you're getting, which is a weird intersection of like yes, but these are reviews from people who are not actually clients in the first place. Right. So you have to be able to show that and like just yeah I can So it was good that we didn't ask our clients to chime in on our behalf but um but we 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 explained that we couldn't <laughs> weigh in. Right. Interesting. And uh and I guess just, well I I suppose all of it goes back to the comment that you made earlier that just there's always another chance to find another good client that you know you're 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 pretty straightforward and and uh and outright on the website of you know, here's our politics, here's our views, it, it ties directly to what we do and what we offer. Right. It can't, you know, that's, that's certainly right. And it turns out that there's, you know, millions of people who want to buy ESG funds. And some of them say, oh, maybe this isn't actually enough. Maybe there's more I can do around my values. Um, that's not just about, you know, buying a fund that has an environmental label on it. 
and um, and you know, in this country, there's just a huge number of people that are thinking about you know every purchase decision or investment decision, or whether they eat meat or whether they drive this type of car or not. You know, they're thinking about money in values terms, and so they want someone to help guide them around those questions and not just how to die with the most money. And so is that is that part of uh is that part of what your actual offering is at this point like are you involved in ESG or other values values impact related investing Yeah we're very involved in both values as it applies to the investing part of things and certainly the giving and donating both for uh, nonprofits but also for politics uh, but also, um, you know, other other lifestyle decisions, what kind of car to buy um, with the EV credits, with solar panels on your house, which is a very good thing to do in D.C. especially, financially and for the environment. So uh, career coaching. So we really work, you know, we're able to go much broader than the typical ESG fund conversation that an investment-focused manager would have. Uh, but we also, even just in the investment space, do have more tools in our toolkit. So what does that look like in practice in the investment space? Like what have you what are you doing or what have you built? So we offer several different options and some clients really focus on one or another and some blend these together. But there's different um, approaches to impact investing that people might be drawn to for different reasons. So the classic ESG approach is I don't want to profit off of certain types of industries or certain types of businesses. You know, I don't want to be able to retire because a company sold more guns or 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 burned more fossil fuel. So I don't want that in my portfolio. So so kind of the traditional ESG that's very focused on on screening out stuff that I don't want my capital to go towards. Right. And there's a few critiques of that of that um, that approach. You know, one of them is that a lot of the funds claim to screen better than they do, where they screen out certain things, but then they, the companies that are left, still have other problematic practices. Uh, but there's also a more fundamental critique, which is that choosing not to profit off of, you know, let's say, you know, Exxon doesn't necessarily give Exxon an incentive to stop lying about climate change or to move toward more renewables as part of their business or anything else because they're writing a dividend check to somebody no matter what. They don't really care who that dividend check goes to once they are already a public company. Right. I mean, and it's it's one thing if they're regularly raising capital in public markets and actually need investors that want to buy their story where, you know, if enough people don't want to buy what they're offering including for ESG filters, like it can literally raise their cost of capital and maybe change behavior. But that's not really the case once they are already a publicly traded company, like just the uh, the, the stock's already out there, the profits are already happening, like someone's willing to pay the willing to buy the dividend. So how much does it really change behavior? Right. And it's really hard to understand that because for progressives, you know, we think about the consumer boycott because that's been a major tool. And when you say we're not sure how much filtering is really having an impact, they think you're saying, oh, well, because you're so small, you're not having an impact. But but it's a really a different critique. You know, when I switched to an electric car recently and stopped filling up at Exxon, you know, that was a small effect, but that had some effect on oil companies' bottom lines. And when millions of people do it, it, it cumulatively has an impact. But if all the progressives in the world refuse to hold Exxon shares, um, 
if anything, if, if the price goes down a little bit, but the profits don't, then some investor who doesn't uh, feel that way is able to buy them at a little discount or perhaps at the same price they would have anyway, um, but it doesn't have the pressure. Um, that said, it's still an important tool because people want to be able to sleep at night and it feeling complicit in problematic practices means they feel bad about investing. They don't necessarily save as much as they would. They might not be willing to put it in stocks at all if they can't filter out stuff that feels icky to them. So it's still an important component for a lot of our folks, but we just don't want to over-advertise how efficacious it is at actually fighting climate change. So then then what's the What's the alternative or the next option if ESG doesn't actually have the kind of impact that your clientele really want to see because boycotting in the investment context doesn't quite work the same as other domains? So there's really uh, three other primary approaches. Um, So one of them is voting the shares you do own. So, you know, maybe you don't want to own own a gun company at all, but you understand our economy runs on fossil fuels and you're not, you don't need to totally divest from that. But you do want your shares to be voted when there's a shareholder resolution around board members or transparency or trying to nudge companies that are, you know, somewhat problematic to be a little better than they'd otherwise be. So we have a couple tools for that one. So that's that's a world of proxy voting. Right, exactly. Um, So we sort of, we call that speaking up. You know, the first part is avoid problem industries. The second category is speaking up. And the easiest way to do that is there's now an ETF that owns the 500 largest companies in the US and that votes your shares in a progressive way. And they, I think, charge three basis points, very similar to a normal index fund, uh, but they vote the shares for you without any work um, in a progressive way. And it's, it's founded by Engine One, who was a uh, a hedge fund that actually was involved in a big push on Exxon's board. That's why I used Exxon for my example. And and what's that ETF? Like it's what called, is the, the ticker is vote V O T E. So they they really focus very, on very witty. Very witty. <laughs> yeah, and it's technically not the S and P five hundred. Uh, uh, I, I guess licensing issues or whatever. Okay, but, it, but it's, it's the five hundred biggest company. It's a it's a it's a diversified large cap U S index, and they actively vote their proxies in a manner aligned to progressive values. So I guess a, a little bit easier than saying we'll buy the individual stocks, the S&P 500, and then manage year-round proxy voting for all clients across 500 stocks, which gets a little hectic. Right. Absolutely. So um, now what's a little bit tricky is if you want to do some of each, there's not, you know, some of the the ESG ETFs that, that exist out there uh, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance, which are sort of three catch-alls for a lot of the uh, concerns that people have, progressives have around companies. Um, so a lot of those funds, you know, will filter out certain companies, and they sometimes do some engagement. It varies by the fund. Some of them are a little more expensive than index funds. Some of them are a lot more expensive than index funds. But it's relatively hard, we've found, uh, some of our clients do, do, do choose some ESG funds, and that's what their approach. But it's relatively hard to find one that that slices the market in just the way the client wants, and right. uh, and that engages within the companies they do own in a progressive way that's effective right. uh, at a reasonable cost. So that that's been hard, and for clients, um, that's where personalized indexing comes in. Um, so personalized indexing. It needs to be at least somewhat larger accounts at the moment, although not quite as large as it used to be, where they'll actually own the individual shares and they'll do some great tax loss harvesting as part of it. And the partner we work with will vote the shares. So you got the speaking up and the avoiding certain industries if you want to. 
and then there's also some some tax benefits uh, from being able to sell the ones that are down and donate the ones that are up the most. And if you have very concentrated gains in certain companies, you can donate them and then you know eventually replace them. Uh, so that's very effective. Um, and hopefully when fractional shares become available, it'll be possible to do that with much smaller accounts and still have the diversification you want. Um, but on the advisor side, we don't quite have the fractional shares yet. So it tends to make sense for folks with, you know, the quarter million in their taxable accounts or more. And, and like, how do you implement? So that's effectively like a, a direct indexing approach, but not necessarily just as a lot of folks uh, frame it, direct indexing for all the tax loss harvesting benefits. It's direct indexing for the uh like more personalized filtering of ESG style filters plus a layer of proxy voting, you know, comma, and you get some of the cool tax benefits that are also attached. But some like the the lead is uh is is the screening and the weightings for you, not not the tax loss harvesting. Right. Well and and you know we financial nerds really love the tax loss harvesting and that helps us feel yeah. that the cost is justified. <laughs> yeah, we and do. for our charitably inclined clients, which is a lot of ours are, then we love that part too. Um, but, um, but yeah, clients I think are usually most excited about being able to design their own filter um, and have the shares voted and also just be a little bit in control because if, you know, Vanguard or BlackRock, you know, initially is is willing to push on environmental stuff but then they soften but you have an appreciated you know blackrock or vanguard or whatever etf you're kind of locked in um but if you own the shares mm-hmm. themselves and you know our provider is named ethic if ethic stops doing a good job at the tax loss harvesting or the voting you can just take your shares to some other provider and and hire them to to you know take over the management oh interesting so uh I hadn't thought about it from that angle that just if you're if you decide you're not happy with them and you want to and you want to change to uh to another provider you don't have the effect of well I'm locked into someone's ETF and I can't really change the ETF and the way they vote it but if I own the raw stocks worst case scenario I just provide find another provider who can overlay personalized indexing and have them do the voting and the ownership and the shares and whatever it is that I want to see happen yeah, exactly. So you're really in the driver's seat, you know, about you can change managers if you want to, you can choose which industries or individual companies to to cut out. And you don't have to do the proxy voting yourself. But if you ever want to take it back over, you can or you can hire someone different to do it. So it really puts the, the client in control in a wonderful way. Um, it is a little bit complicated. You have a very long statement. You have more transactions than you might be used to. Um, but but you know we can we can help people with that complexity and help make sure that they don't have to deal with it too much. And, and you said your your platform of choice for for executing on this is is Ethic. Yeah, and what we like about Ethic um, is that they have a very good interface for uh, surveying clients about their values. They're really values forward in a way similar to us. Um, and that they do the proxy voting. There's a lot of personalized index providers, but I'm not sure how many others are are doing the proxy voting in an activist, uh, progressive aligned way. So, so good interface for, I guess, is for clients to like express their values so that the portfolio can be filtered accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's some off the shelf options if they want to really focus on the environmental part, or if they want to have a little bit of a focus on, you know on the on all of the different things or they can do more of a custom approach um there's all we haven't used as much as we probably should but we can also develop our own menu options or they can really have a very 
you know, very customized approach. And if someone also has legacy assets, you can kind of wrap around those assets, which is nice. So if someone, you know, doesn't want Amazon because they're a journalist and they report on Amazon and they don't want Apple because they have a lot of Apple from their dad that they're carrying. So they don't want to buy any more Apple. You know, all of those kinds of concerns, you can, you don't have to duplicate it the way you would if you were just buying a large cap ETF. And so how does it work from a pricing perspective? Like does what what is ethics cost and like who who pays that where does that cost come from it's about 30 bips it um it varies a little bit based on how customized it is and the clients pay that just like they'd pay a mutual fund or etf expense ratio you know we're pretty careful that we only put the assets in there where they're getting the value out of it so for a lot of clients that's just their taxable accounts and it might just be their taxable accounts for their new assets and not their legacy assets um uh, for other clients, they really love the customization. They're happy to do it in their IRA too, even though they're not getting the tax benefit from it. I was going to ask, like, do you do it with IRAs for clients who like just want their portfolio invested that way? So, so yes, if they want to, uh, because that alone is worth it for them. Others, you know, we'll we'll just do it in the taxable accounts where the tax loss harvesting mitigates a lot of the cost. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we're very cost conscious, maybe even a little too cost conscious. We hate paying expense ratios. And we, we you know, one of our big values uh, that we add is helping people get out of, of high cost actively managed funds that they have as legacies. So, you know, our biases are often against uh, using any provider if there's not sort of hard economic benefit for it. And I think over time, I've really learned uh, that our clients really do value the voting and the and the carving out of things that they feel bad about. And if, and, 30 bips is really not that much in this in the scheme of things if that's valuable to them. So I I say it's sort of a no-brainer for the taxable accounts because the tax benefit really pays the cost and then some. And then for the other accounts, it's kind of up to them if they'd rather do that or or something more like vote with with a lower cost, um, but without the filtering. And so I guess as I've got to ask, like you're 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 comfortable with the cost layering that does come with one per you know, planning fee to the firm for the planning firm, one percent AUM fee for investment management plus another 30 bips to ethic and so at that point like you're charging one percent but ethics doing just the i guess the, the trading implementation around the personalized indexing uh just like you're you're good with the layers of who's charging what in that stack. yeah and the ethic that 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 point three is not on their whole portfolio so usually for right. the, the vast majority of our clients a lot of their money is in retirement accounts and Initially, there were some issues with some of the fees for trading international companies where it, it, it raised the transaction costs. So it was really just the taxable U.S. portion of the portfolio. Uh, and and so it's really uh, usually a rounding error. But we wanted to uh, really have it be equivalent to mutual funds or ETFs. Um, you know, they're getting a more elaborate strategy. We do do more work for ethic. Uh, because we're going back and forth with them to make sure that the communication is happening about the client's values and that the tax loss harvesting is happening in the right years and in and, and the right style. Um, so it's actually more work than ETFs for, um, so we didn't want to have an incentive to steer people away from ethic. So in practice, like only a portion of dollars are actually in ethic at their fee rate anyways. I guess like it sounds like the rest, you're a you know, low-cost ETF kind of investment firm in the first place. So the rest is, is, you know, just finding cost efficient funds. 
Yeah, exactly. So, you know, even the 30 bips is not very high and the tax loss harvesting often helps us get them out of some legacy holdings that are more right. expensive. Um, and we're very conscious that, you know, that ethic isn't charging on legacy assets that, um, that where they're not able to add value. That's even an interesting angle. So not just tax loss harvesting for just sort of the sake of value in and of itself, but you'll use you'll use the tax loss harvesting benefits to create the losses to offset against gains for other legacy things they have that are maybe higher costs and would be good to shift out of, but they don't want to leave them because of the capital gains. So that's your like tax loss harvesting as a capital gains like transmutation exercise. Right. So a lot of our clients come to us and they have some pretty expensive mutual funds that have underperformed by roughly their expenses over time. Sometimes they have very concentrated positions. And, you know, absent ethic, we still can gradually extricate them, but we're always carefully worrying about the capital gains and what year to realize them. So we can extricate them a lot faster and save them those expenses a lot more quickly if we're able to get um, those those losses harvested um, that the, the personalized indexing strategy allows. Interesting. So then, so as you've gone through this growth cycle, and, and as you'd said, um, uh, you know, expanded team and refined some systems that you felt like you had the capacity to lower minimums and 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 allow more flow in. So I guess just I'd love to hear a little bit more as as you've scaled through that range. Like for most advisory firms, I find it's it's just it's that window from about half a million to a million dollars of revenue where you have to start figuring out some of this hiring and like tech and systems stuff. You know, you can brute force it lower than that and things really start breaking if you haven't solved for it higher than that. So I guess I'm I'm really curious to hear more of the journey of like how does hire like how did hiring start working for you? When did you decide to start expanding the team? You know, how did you decide what positions to hire and how do you go about finding advisors to fit fit the firm, particularly given given the nature of what you do? You're a little bit more of a, a specialized firm in just who you can hire that will be a good fit in the first place. Right. There's not always uh, people who want to do financial advising, but have a, a long history of being activists um, and got their start in uh, college sit-ins and things like that. Uh, yeah. So we figured out we wanted to start doing some hiring in um, late 2018. And um, uh, we hired Bridget, who was our, our first other advisor um, uh, in March of 2019. And uh, she's been wonderful. She's still with us. None of the people we've hired have have, uh, have ever left us. So we're doing something right. Um, and um, it was really that we, um, you know, Zach, Zach really led with, with managing her and mentoring her. And he really loves teaching. And um, we also are both really aware that there's some things we excel at and other things that we'll never learn no matter how hard we try to force ourselves to learn them. And having complementary partners, having complementary team members where they excel at places we're weaker and uh, where we can, you know, both um, teach each other and complement each other's weaknesses um, really strengthens the team. So what did that look like in practice? Like what were the... What were the weaknesses you were trying to hire for as you were as you were starting to build up the team? Um, so, I mean, well, for our first hire, it was really about expanding capacity and um, making it possible for um, Zach and I to really work with people without having the other one in the room. We really believe in having two people in the room whenever possible. Um, to to people from our team, because you catch things the other one didn't, you know, the person leading can focus more and not have to take as careful notes, but the notes don't have to suffer. 
Um, it's a little bit easier to, um, you know, occasionally slow someone down if, if they might have talked over a client, but then, you know, the one who's, who's um, in the room can listen and notice that a client has something important that they need to get out. Um, so we wanted to have two people in meetings, but wanted to be able to, to function a little bit more independently. Um, and so, you know, having someone for me, I'm just terrible at taking notes while leading. And so having Bridget be able to, you know, mm. take notes and, and debrief afterwards is very helpful for me. Uh, I think for Zach, he loves the emotional and behavioral and, and deep work, um, but doesn't love the sort of project management part of mm-hmm. making sure that every little detail gets prepared ahead of time and, and properly implemented afterwards. Um, and so we were really looking for someone who loves, um, you know, loves being an implementer, loves, um, you know, really carefully making sure balls don't get dropped um, and wanted to learn the trade from us. So we really had to think about what kind of firm we wanted to grow. And both of us have been pretty in pretty strong agreement. We didn't want to, you know, do dramatic scaling and be a huge firm. Um, but we, we had some real soul searching to do individually and together about did we want to be a small giant of a firm that's, um, you know, great and larger and with a mentorship track and bringing in more advisors and teaching them and managing all of that complexity? Or did we want to be a firm that um, uh, was more focused on, you know, doing good work ourselves with some support and complementarity, but not not necessarily really growing an enterprise? And to be honest, you know, Zach and I have very similar values and we both care about work-life balance, but I've always been more on the end of the spectrum of um, the work-life balance question and not working too much and having time for other pursuits and family and not overcommitting. And Zach's always been, you know, as you might imagine, as the one who really started the business, uh, the more entrepreneurial one, the one who's optimistic about uh, expansion and trying new things and and a little bit more of an extrovert who loves to teach and mentor. So there was a little bit of a, a tension about whether to grow really at all beyond the the three of us, uh, as well as, of course, Tracy. And um, I had to do some soul searching myself. I like building things, but I, I was frankly scared of being overwhelmed by the complexity of, and the demands of, of you know, a larger business with more advisors, um, where I had to do quality control and deal with any management challenges and and have things outside of my own immediate, you know, control, you know, we now have meetings going on where neither Zach nor I are in the meeting. And we're pretty confident that they, that, you know, our people are doing a great job and they ask us questions afterwards, but you know, we don't know directly anymore. And that's, Uh that's really scary. scary. But Mm -hmm. still have the responsibility. I'm someone who just really, feels the responsibility if we screw something up for a client i don't just want to refund their fees i want to like go over to their house and dig them out of whatever we messed up right yeah. like so it was really hard i honestly in a in our kinder training i did a life planning where i realized i like building things and i'm scared and i had to you know face that and um and i especially i had to face it because if it were just my business lifestyle probably would have been okay mm-hmm. um both would have been okay um but I think I was really, I was worried I was going to be trimming Zach's wings, that he would have built this amazing, cool thing and brought people into the profession. But because I was too, you know, anxious and scared of, of taking it, you know, he was going to slow down and, and do it for me. And there's a healthy dynamism there. If I slow him down a little bit and we're a little bit more cautious, that's great. And certainly if he speeds me up a little bit and gets me a little bit outside of my comfort zone, that's great. But but you want that tension to be productive and not one where you're really stopping each other from realizing uh, your visions. 
how have you reconciled that tension in practice? Like, how are you managing to that tension? So um, it's not just a matter of straightforward compromise. I, I really changed. I changed what I wanted and I did it through, you know, the pandemic helped me realize I had essentially untreated anxiety and that, that exacerbated some of this and, you know, getting the kinds of support people should get when they have anxiety, you know, helped me focus on what I would be excited about, about that growth and less focused on what could go wrong. I still think about what could go wrong. I still make sure we have a good compliance team. I sure make, you know, I still make sure we, you know, have training wheels before people are off to the races, but I don't stay up at night quite as much worrying about it because of, of really facing that and, and choosing to do things that are a little scary to me and, and just deal with the feelings that that brings up. And so that's just the, the, the wonderful word of therapy to like work, just work through yep. that. Therapy, anxiety meds, um, meditation, taking some days off here and there to recuperate and, uh, you know, address my own physical and mental health, uh, you know, all of those things. Um, you know, and I think also, you know, having the administration change, having COVID strictures relax, you know, it started to feel like a more spacious right. time. So we hired our, our, th- our fourth advisor, um, in February of 2021, you know, we just had the inauguration, we had the um, uh, vaccines come out, and it was feeling like, okay, we can sort of start imagining a future where we can build capacity and fill it again, um, instead of just survival mode. And we also realized we're in this new Zoom era, we can do a nationwide search and find people, you know, who want to work anywhere, and offer them a really good work-life balance and really meaningful work and not, not make them move to the DC area. So every hire after Bridget has been someone who doesn't live in the DC area, and and that's actually still worked very well. So then, how do you find people? So we, we you know, we decided we wanted to really grow grow um, grow people internally. We didn't want to just choose someone who's already a CFP, already established, already a known quantity, um, and that's partially because we do things in a very specific way and we didn't necessarily want to have to retrain and it was also around gender and racial equity you know the stats are so terrible for people who are able to get all the way through the cfp process on their own or or at a big firm and by being willing to take career changers and start people who are earlier on their journey and do the training internally we could have a much broader net every hire we've made has been a a woman and or a person of color uh, and or um, a person who's LGBTQ, and and that's really wonderful. It means we're a much stronger team with more understanding of what our clients go through. Um, and I think it's in part because we were willing to hire people earlier in their career. So I'm curious how you, just how you manage that from a hiring end. Because I, I know, I mean, you you were you were an attorney before uh, before moving to the advisor ends. Like I'm 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 sure you're well aware of like there are legal and employment law dynamics around you know trying to improve the diversity of your team but what you are and are not allowed to do from a from a hiring perspective and taking gender and race into account so i, I guess i'm just i'm curious like how, how are you how are you navigating that in practice yeah so much of that discussion sort of imagines at the very end of the process that people are have two candidates and one's better but you're choosing the other one and it's a very tokenizing approach and what we found is it's really about taking the structural impediments out of the way 
and um, and it, and it's really starting from day one of envisioning a role and who's right for the role that we can get rid of the the societal structures that that privilege people that come from a, a wealthy and racially and and gender privileged background. So, for example, you know, I started with saying, you know, they don't need to already have their Series sixty five or their CFP. They can they can learn that on the job and get the that on the job. Making sure that they can have um, a flexible work life that that we can have a you know paid time off for parental leave um, that um, you know that a lot of the ways that um, you know that they don't have to work eighty hours and that they can have a home life outside of it you know that's good for everybody but it is especially important for allowing um, women to get ahead in the workplace and succeed and you know we envision our role and our culture and our benefits all all in a way to try to make our work work for people uh, from all sorts of different backgrounds. And in our job postings, we also really highlight that we think, um, you know, not that any one hire is going to be a particular way, but that building a diverse team that reflects what the progressive movement uh, looks like and has as their experience is critical to us understanding uh, what our clients need from us and being able to not have blind spots that, you know, a bunch of cis white men um, might have if those are the only people in the room. Well, I guess it just it it makes a good point that you know for for so many firms I know that are 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 trying to get more diverse in in their advisors and and you know often come back to something the effect of well it's you know when less than twenty five percent of women are CFP professionals and and I think fewer than ten percent are are advisors of color or CFPs of color like it's really hard to have a more diverse uh, uh, advisor base when just like the the, the number of CFPs to hire from is more limited in the first place that, uh, you know, you're effectively your, your workaround or alternative to that is, well, if we start earlier in the, in the, in the career progression, you haven't experienced those limiting factors in the first place. The number of people who just think financial advising sounds interesting before you put the other limitations in place, it turns out there's a lot more diverse people if you move further upstream before all those all, all those requirements crop up. Right. It's moving further upstream. Exactly. And it's also realizing that a lot of different types of life experiences can make someone a good advisor and skills. You know, what we really realized was being able to communicate well and having emotional intelligence. Those are actually the hardest things to teach. And there's a lot of different ways people can demonstrate that, that are not, um, necessarily as restricted to people who've had very privileged backgrounds. So for example, like, you know, our former careers among our seven members of the team, we have, um, we have a rabbi, we have a, someone who was a medic in Afghanistan, we have someone who was a physical therapist. And in all of those situations, you know, they had pastoral skills, they had the ability to help someone feel cared for and demonstrated caring um, that was really authentic. You know, those those are transferable skills. And yeah, we'll teach someone to do a Roth IRA or traditional IRA. That's easy to teach. But teaching someone, um, you know, but teaching someone how to be caring, how to listen well, like that's actually really hard. Interesting. Interesting. And and so because that's that's the that's how you approach hiring in the first place when you drill down to we're not requiring industry experience and industry background, we're not requiring people to come from the financial world. We're looking for uh, just people who can demonstrate communication skills and emotional intelligence and some reasonable aptitude to learn Roth versus traditional IRAs at some point down the road, you you get a much wider pool of people to hire from. 
Right. Yeah. And and having that wider pool, putting the work in to make sure that that um, you get the wider pool and that you're willing to put the time in to interview people who are not obvious, but have something that's exciting to you. You know, I, when I saw that Catherine was a physical therapist and she answered our questions in a way that made it clear she really got our values, um, you know, I might have taken a closer look than someone who only had, you know, six or nine months of, of internship experience. And she's been phenomenal. I'm so glad that I found that. And but it requires, you know, it requires doing the extra work to, to look past the obvious signifiers. Um, and it also requires hiring early enough that, you know, there's time for people to learn what they don't know yet. You know, a lot of people don't hire until they're like drowning in work. And we hired ahead of the curve. We, you know, we both limited the new clients and started the hiring process early. So that gave us the space to say, it's okay if your first six months, you're just taking notes and like chit-chatting with us about and nerding out together. And you're not needing to produce that much that has immediate, you know, um, economic value for the firm. So as you reflect back on this journey, what's surprised you the most about building an advisory business? I should have expected this question. I know you always ask this question. Uh, um, That was a good sigh. That was a big sigh. Yeah. um, You know, honestly, I, uh, I had major imposter syndrome for my first few years. I, I worried I'd be an introvert. I'd worried I'd get details wrong. Um, and which is, I find fascinating. It's like, you were a lawyer before, before this, like, I don't want to, I don't know, paint too many generalizations around lawyers, but like certain level of aptitude and attention to detail, you kind of have to get through to like get a law degree and pass the bar exam in the first place. Like you, you came with a pretty good starting skill set to be able to do advising work. Right. I mean, one of the, one of the tricky things is the more, you know, the more, you know, that you don't know. And uh, I think, you know, that's especially true in the law where, you know, you can very easily know enough to be dangerous or to have a guess how something should come out. And then it turns out there's actually a regulation or a statute on that you weren't aware of. Um, And, you know, I think I was very focused on, you know, acquiring technical aptitude and thinking that the main way I'm going to help people is by helping them play this, you know, play this game the right way. And the time. And what I've really learned is both the value I actually bring to people and that I feel most excited about and like I really, you know, spent my day well is the emotional moments and the and the the big vision question. You know, there, there are clients who've realized they can cut back on the work they hate. They can leave the job or they can say no to certain types of, of clients and scale back and really focus on the part that they love and you know, making those sort of big life choices that have nothing to do with exactly what they're invested in, but helping them, you know, just just figure out what they want and give themselves permission to do it uh, is just amazingly um, fulfilling for me. You know, just it's it's an impact that I I you know I've I've helped draft legislation and there's large numbers of people who get paid family leave because of you know the movement I was part of here in D.C. and that. You know, I, intellectually, I think that's a bigger impact, but emotionally, really helping someone make a key life decision that's going to make them more satisfied and let them be more involved with their family and community or have more meaningful work because they got the financial permission to do it. Like, it just it's just gratifying in a way I never expected. I think that's a uh, I think it's an interesting way to frame it of like 
you know, sort of intellectually, my legislative work may have had bigger impact on paper from lives reached, but emotionally, like just getting the client through that meaningful, massive moment of change uh, feels more fulfilling for you. Yeah. And, you know, and I intellectually, I let myself off the hook on, on that impact because, you know, the ripple effects, when we help those clients make those great changes, right. you know, their career or their donating, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to help get the next policy passed. And the fact that so many of our clients do donate through their time or their money or both to, re- to really, donating isn't the right word, but, you know, yeah. helping yeah. them leave sustainable lives. I sort of imagine it's like, I used to be on the front lines of the army, you know, fighting these battles. And now I'm the cook and the supply lines. And, you know, our clients are out there, uh, you know, making the world a better place in all sorts of ways. And they would have burned out, you know, 20 or 30 years in, or maybe sooner. But if we can help them live sustainable lives, then they're going to be able to do their work that much more effectively and longer. And, you know, we have an impact on them, but we also have an impact on every everyone that they impact. So what was the low point for you on this journey? I mean, definitely it was uh, COVID, uh, COVID while having young, young kids. Um, you know, it was just really challenging to uh, figure out, you know, how, how to balance everything in my life and, um, and whether, you know, all of our dreams about growing something really made sense if, um, if the rug could be taken out from under us like that. Um, and, you know, in the end, I think there were a lot of silver linings for our business because it helped us be disciplined and really thoughtful about what we wanted. And, um, you know, having that low point pretty early made everything else seem a little easier by comparison. Um, but, you know, our clients were not as freaked out as your typical client in terms of watching their portfolio every day, but they had some major, major challenges. And, you know, it was nice to feel of service to them, but it was also really stressful to have our own challenges and need to be of service all at the same time. So I, I guess I'm just wondering more, like, what were you doing in practice to try to just manage, live with the balance? I mean, it sounds like part of it was just very consciously, like, we're raising our minimums and slowing down the flow of new clients because I just write more work with new clients coming on board. If you uh, ratchet up minimums and slow the pace of new clients, there's just less work to be done in the business for the time being. So that created a little bit more space for uh, all the all the parenting, childcare, and other pandemic-related stresses. Was was that the primary thing? Like, were there other things you were doing or adjusting or changing in life just to try to manage to uh, the the pandemic environment and and all the childcare duties that showed up? You know, it was a little bit of everything. You know, luckily, some of our clients also didn't want to deal with their long-term challenges at the same time. So we, we, we really did prioritize the things that were time-sensitive for our clients. We did a lot of tax loss harvesting. We did a lot of meeting with folks who had sudden changes to their career or, or their needs for hiring private care or other, other challenges from the pandemic. Um, and, and we did need to prioritize a little bit. I don't think there was ever a time where someone said, Hey, I want to review my portfolio or my estate plan. And we said, no, uh, we, we found a way to, to say yes to, to all of the requests. I mean, honestly, the other part is I think any other partnership, Zach, Zach and I, if we didn't have as strong of a partnership, it it would have been really stressful with trying to, you know, divide up that among, among the two of us when we were both facing those challenges. But we just, you know, one of us had a day where, 
where we just really needed to be with the kids. Um, the other one could pick up meetings, um, you know, because we do the double staffing, you know, if one of us was out of pocket, you know, we could do that substituting. We had a strong enough relationships and trust in each other that we could, uh, we could each pick up slack during, you know, any particular challenging time that one family had. And I, I thank God for that. I mean, I, there's parts of me that think a solo practice and a lifestyle practice would be simpler and easier, but doing that alone would have been terrifying. And just having someone who could, you know, pick up a ball when I needed to toss it off was, was, was huge. And, and I was able to do the same for him. So what do you know now that like you wish you could go back and tell you five or six years ago as you were looking a switch from law into the business and like partner with Zach and come into the industry? You know, I think I think if I could take a little bit of the confidence that having a good six years has given me and and get it earlier, it would be nice. I don't I think that's magical thinking, to be honest. But just really a sense of like, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't worry too much about any one, you know, little decision or or little or little decision point. Like the big picture is build a practice where you have team members who can be there for each other and where you can be there for your clients and have deep, meaningful relationships with your colleagues and your clients. And if you can do that, you know, it'll work. Your life will be good. The economics will work itself out uh, sooner or later. And just really focusing on that and not worrying quite so much about you know, how prepped am I for this meeting? And, you know, have I, have I done all the spreadsheets I could on this? Um, that, that listening more and being present actually is, is what matters the most and that you'll figure out, uh, you know, the technical things sooner or later. So I guess this in retrospect, like anything you could have done that would have moved the confidence curve faster for you, if that was the blocking point? I think I think if we'd kept things a little bit simpler from the start, um, just a, you know a somewhat narrower scope um, in just sort of how we thought about what we did. I think we really believed early on we needed to offer you know dozens of different topics and like we were going to be more comprehensive. We were going to work so much yeah. harder than everyone else. You know I think uh, you know we 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 never got to deploy the physical cards, but we literally had these cards that I think Zach told you about. Uh, that were, you know, two dozen different meeting topics, and we'd have people arrange them in this very bespoke way. And I, I think it's great to be able to customize. If someone has a spear on their back, they don't want to talk about their their diet. <laughs> um, right. You know, you need to address things that are urgent. But there would have been ways to be a little bit more systematized and really focused on here's what we can do best. If you have other needs, you know, talk to us. We'll try to do our best on them or help some help you find someone who will, but this is what our strong suit is. Um, you know, rather, you know, I think even being more hyper-focused on, you know, our niche, our skills, the things we, we're most helpful on uh, from earlier. And it would have been hard because you do want to be all things when you're just trying to make sure you have enough clients. But I guess the irony is particularly if, if you know, you're in the, you're in the imposter syndrome stage of the career. The like the only thing rougher than imposter syndrome is imposter syndrome while you're also trying to be the most comprehensive, comprehensive <laughs> yes. or advisor. And thing you have you're like digging a bigger hole for yourself to have to climb out of. Yeah, and you know, on a on a test for law school, yes, I can quick study and I can usually get the right answer. But when you're trying to say, what are the 20 different things someone might pull out of their hat as a concern they have in the meeting, and I need to be ready to know everything about all of those, you know, it's overwhelming, especially for someone with anxiety. And I think 
you know, I mean, honestly, if I had to distill it to one thing for a new advisor, I'd say, get really comfortable saying, I don't know, I'll look into that and get back to you. And, you know, I went to Harvard and Yale and people don't say I don't know there. <laughs> mm. Those places, you know, they're all about trying to show how smart they are and just learning to say, my job is not to show how smart it is I am. It's to listen, to connect, to be intellectually curious and to eventually be able to answer what my client needs. But I don't have to know off the top of my head. And in fact, you know, they're already carrying around feelings of, of embarrassment or shame about what they don't know. It's actually really reassuring to have another smart person who does this professionally say, that's a really tough question. Wow, I don't know. Oh, man, I'm trying to even think how I'd research that. Oh, yeah, well, I'll look into that for you and get back to you. You know, that's actually really fine. But in the first year or two, I, I was not comfortable saying that right. yet. So as we wrap up, this is a, a, a podcast about success. And, and just one of the themes that comes up is the, the word success means different things to different people. And so you're on this wonderful journey and the firm is just or like plowed through a million dollars of revenue. You, you've added a million dollars revenue in just the past four years alone. It's like the, the business is doing quite well by any objective standard. How do you define success for yourself at this point? For me, Success is about having deep, meaningful human connections with the people around me in my life, with my coworkers, with my clients, and, and even more importantly, with my, my family and friends and community. And, you know, having those connections that allow us to, to help support each other and having a good impact on the world and being the kind of human beings we want to be. And I'm so glad that it's economically successful because it allows me to not worry about the economics and just to focus my time and my energy on caring for people and connecting in that deep human way. I like that framing that like it's 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 nice when it's this economically successful because then I don't have to focus on the economics and I can I can just focus on the human being in front of me. Right. And the other thing that that's done for us as a business is it means we get to now think about new types of, of business flourishing that aren't really about the economics. So when we changed our fee structure and you know we're thinking more and more about how can we provide free or very cheap one-to-many services, whether that's writing or videos or cohort classes, you know, where we just don't care at all about whether it makes money or leads to clients, but it's just about helping progressives live sustainable lives because we care about that. And we don't want to work with all of them one-on-one because we don't want to work all the time, but we want to have that bigger impact. And it's really wonderful to say we don't have to think about the economics of this. We just need to focus on, you know, almost like you're running a nonprofit, right? If your goal as a nonprofit is to help progressives live sustainable lives, what would you spend your grant money on? And we can be our own funders and just focus on that. So I do have some some mark I want to leave on the world, um, you know, uh, through the financial advising space, as well as through, you know, other political things that I'm involved in. But, um, but in terms of my own life and contentment and satisfaction, it's really about having the space for that deep connection to other people on this planet. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Ari, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's such a pleasure to, to learn from you and explore these things together. Likewise, thank you. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com 
where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.